You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts, Katie Schwab, Rose Crest, Jamie Ansorge, Stuart Shorenstein, Ken Fisher. I'm Ken Fisher. Welcome to a special edition of Beltway Briefing. Outside the Beltway today, as we talk about Mayor Eric Adams' first 100 days in office. With me are Katie Schwab and Rose Chris, practice group leaders for Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies in New York, the group founder, Stuart Shorenstein, and one of its principals, Jamie Ansorge, a government relations professional. Welcome to the Beltway Briefing. Eric Adams distinguished himself in the Democratic primary for mayor last year by focusing on issues that he was most familiar with as a former police officer turned activist turned politician, and which he thought would resonate with the public. Crime, homelessness, the need for additional uh, services for people with special needs, um, and to some extent, the need to bring New York City back as a place where people wanted to be. That did, in fact, work with the voters, and he was elected mayor. And much of his efforts in the first 100 days after he staffed his government were around those very issues. In a remarkable and shocking turn of events, on the 101st day, all of those themes came together when a deranged gunman shot 10 people on a subway uh, train and sent a dozen and a half others to the hospital in some type of a bizarre effort to call attention to his disagreements with how Adams was handling homelessness. In an instant, New Yorkers were once again confronting the specter of whether the city had returned to a period that most New Yorkers only know from the reruns of Law and Order, and whether or not um, it was in fact time for the city to come back, whether the city itself would come back. So with all of these events testing Adams' ability to govern, why he, while he himself was recovering from a bout of COVID, what are New Yorkers thinking about all of this? Katie. Well, I think the mayor has enjoyed quite a honeymoon in his first 100 days. I mean, he, as we've discussed before, he ran a remarkably tight campaign. He um, managed to find the themes that would resonate with many New Yorkers and has consistently reiterated those themes throughout his first 100 days in office. He picked a a crack team of professionals and has been, um, you know, drilling down regularly on the issues that New Yorkers continue to care about. Um, It's been tough, though, because while his popularity, his personality, um, his ability to confront and stand up to those who disagree with him have have proven to be popular with the public. His approval ratings have remained fairly high. But I think what's beginning to become clear is that it's one thing to run a campaign and another thing to govern. To be fair, my opinion is that these events are almost like a tsunami that's hit the city, right? I mean, a lot of these issues of homelessness and crime were building up for many, many years and they were emerging out in the middle of the ocean. They're hitting the city and it's not something that you can turn back the damage on right away. And I think that that's what the mayor is is grappling with right now. Um, So far, he does seem to have the um, support of the public. And I believe, um, somewhat to my surprise, that this horrific incident this week in Brooklyn has not 
made New Yorkers completely change their mind about the future of the city. I think there's still faith in the mayor and in his efforts to turn things around. I think the subways remain as crowded as they've been in recent weeks, certainly not at pre-pandemic levels, but people are continuing to get on the trains. And I think people are hopeful still that the city will come back um, in some way. Rose Chris, what were the trends that you were seeing before this incident? In other words, over the course of the of the last hundred days, major employers uh, calling for their employees to come back, the resumption of, of tourism, uh, first with a trickle, now more steadily. Um, was New York on its way back and has this incident stalled that progress? Uh, it certainly felt like, in addition to this incident, but also the new wave of COVID, which we're, the mayor is experiencing half of city and state government seems to be infected with COVID after a few in-person conferences. But I think that as Omicron sort of dipped down, right, we saw an incredible influx of people coming back into the city, back into offices. I was just saying the other day, I was trying to make a lunch reservation last minute for myself and a client and I couldn't get into Odeon. I couldn't get into Italy. Everything was packed and it felt great, right? It felt like it was back. Our client, the Whitney, they just opened the biennial. It was packed. There was a line wrapped around the block. They had to turn people away from opening night. And so there was this, there is this real momentum, right? And and this is an unfortunate sort of hiccup. It's a tragedy, right? And a hiccup in the sort of confidence that people are feeling because now we're seeing compounding issues. We're seeing the new wave of COVID. We're seeing increased presence of crime on the subway and certainly a perception that things are becoming less safe. Or And, um, you know, I'm, I'm fearful that as we go into the summer months, which is really when the city sees a huge influx of tourists, that we're going to see some depression in the outlook that NYC and Co. had projected, which was really robust tourism this, this summer, especially from European nations. And we haven't even talked about the impact of the conflict in Ukraine, right? And whether or not that's going to also depress European tourism. So I think there are just a lot of factors that, as Katie said, some of which are totally outside of the mayor's control. But nonetheless, it's his job to grapple with, right? Um, and so we're watching to see how he navigates it. So far, he's sort of like floated above the fray. But I think at a certain point, he's going to have to sort of get down and dirty and, and figure out how to how to navigate these challenges. So, Tristan, as you move around the city, what are you saying? And what are people saying to you? Well, I, I certainly see um, restaurants completely full, uh, Broadway shows and, and, and cultural uh, uh, events are full. Uh, offices are not so full. Uh, and I think there's a disconnect there that people are trying to figure out, particularly the real estate community. Uh, but I, I kind of see Eric Adams as being high energy. Uh, he is a cheerleader for the city. And I think he's put himself on the side of the public and against the naysayers. And I think that has played very, very well uh, in terms of uh, of giving himself time to try to uh, deal with uh, endemic problems. I mean, the problems don't go away because on the first day of an election, uh, someone else is in charge. But uh, I think he provides a sense that he's trying to deal with them. And I think the public reacts favorably to that. Is that what you're hearing from the business community also? Yes, business community, uh, 
dinner tables. It's a sea change from Mayor de Blasio. One of the remarkable things uh, that we learned recently, you know, during the tail end of the Bloomberg years through the de Blasio years, the city of New York grew in population by about a half a million people. You know, as much as the, it's like the city of San Jose moving to the five boroughs. And then over the last two years of, of COVID, the projections are that the city's population may have gone down by as much as 400,000 because a combination of, of the pipeline of immigration being shut down in the, in the Trump years um, and also uh, more opportunities in, in other places because of the uh, high cost of living in, in New York, particularly uh, particularly rent. So now we're, we're at a crossroads. Should the city be planning for more growth or should the city be planning for its population to stay static for the next few years as, as more people decide to work from areas outside the city um, to the extent that their employers will let them? Katie, what do you think? I believe the city should continue to plan to grow. I mean, I think they need to take a long-term view. Um, this city has always grown historically over time. And I think what's important to keep in mind is over a longer period of time, the city has created far more jobs than it has created housing. And that has contributed to a terrible problem of affordability in the city. That's one of the things that's hindering our growth right now. So I think there needs to be a concerted effort to create more housing at all different ranges of you know, affordability and different types of ownership models so that, that people will be attracted to come and live here. That's absolutely one of the number one burdens keeping people from, from coming here and help prevents businesses from wanting to relocate here. It's a really important thing. And there needs to be a regional approach to that as well. It should be, obviously, the city can show a leadership role, but they need to work in partnership with regional governments throughout the um, state and the tri-state area. Adam so far hasn't announced any of the sweeping initiatives of either the, the Bloomberg administration in terms of large-scale rezonings or the uh, de Blasio administration focus on building uh, affordable housing and integrating more, more affluent uh, neighborhoods. What has he been doing about making it easier to develop in New York? Well, he's, this, is, he, this is Rose. He's released recently his blueprint for economic recovery, right, where it lays out a number of priorities where he's going to be focusing. But I think to your point, Ken, none of the, the big ticket ones have yet been fully announced. He also has appointed you know, Chief Efficiency Czar, who's going through to ostensibly cut red tape for businesses who are trying to operate in this city. Um, and LaRocca so far has started to put forth like one-stop shopping both for businesses. And she did something similar as DOB where she's implemented DOB now, which was meant to revolutionize the way that um, permits were issued for construction in the city. And so I, I think that this idea of government being sort of like a customer service facing entity is something that the mayor is going to really embrace and will hopefully help facilitate development to move forward more quickly. I also think that he's going to be less beholden to the community groups in opposition of development if it meets his larger picture goals than we saw under the de Blasio administration. I anticipate a lot less sort of like hemming and hawing and hand-wringing over, over community groups. You know, the mayor has said very openly he's not afraid of the Twitterati, right? And the perception of the min loud minority on social media. He's more interested in getting stuff done. So I think that we will see sort of like an ideological shift in the way he approaches these kinds of things in addition to some more like nuts and bolts shifts in the way entities interact with government. 
His confidence in his judgment has also led to some notable stumbles on his part. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the ones that 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 you've observed? Yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to. Outside of my work with Cozen, I'm, I'm the former president of Stonewall Democrats of New York City, the state's largest LGBT Democratic club. And we, we certainly had lots of occasion to interface with the mayor over a number of his appointments early on in his administration. Um, and while I remain you know, vocally opposed to the appointment of individuals who've espoused and purported homophobic views, what I think is really interesting is the mayor called us to City Hall, us being the LGBTQ community leaders, to have a conversation. And in the room, were all of the heads of his agencies and deputy mayors and the DOE. And he said, we can talk about these appointments on which we agreed to disagree, or we can talk about the priorities that are impacting your community and how we can really deliver. So we went through and we had a number of recommendations and, and we're, we're waiting to see what comes of that. But, you know, it's, I think, again, it's really him feeling fully confident in his choices, unwilling to compromise or, or change his opinion. Um, but, really focused on moving ahead and trying to produce some tangible results. You know, again, we'll agree to disagree on the appointments, but I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll see some real tangible outcomes, especially for trans communities of color, which have been historically underserved by, this, by the city, so. Katie Schwab, the, the, um, the mayor is dealing with a city council, two thirds of whom were um, uh, elected for the first time in the, in the last election a new council speaker, all of them facing term limits. Um, what kind of reaction has he gotten from the council and, and how, do you, how do you see their path coming together over the next few months when New York City has to adopt the budget and, and deal with some of these other legislative issues? Well, it seems that the council is, is just beginning to come together as a body. Um, fortunately, there is a very experienced legislator, Adrienne Adams, who is serving as the speaker of the council. And she's really just finalized putting her team together recently. Um, and there are some experienced uh, members who are, are chairing the major committees. But as you mentioned, there are so many new members that what we're seeing so far is not a lot of focus on any legislation or any real concrete policy for the city, but rather a lot of oversight hearings, very broad topics on, you know, equity in transportation or how has COVID affected the park system. They seem to be really getting their arms around the big themes that motivated them in their work before joining the council or that have helped them propel them into office. And I don't know yet um, exactly how that will translate into a working relationship with the administration. Um, we did see that the um, one piece of legislation that I think is an interesting example is that at the end of the previous session, there was um, a pay disclosure, a salary disclosure bill that was um, adopted rather abruptly. It would require employers with four or more, more employees to um, post job opportunities and then to disclose what the salary and benefits were. It was written in a way that it would have really posed quite a number of challenges to, to many, many, many employers. And based on experience in other states, the business community felt that it could have some serious um, unintended consequences in terms of really kind of penalizing New Yorkers for certain types of jobs. And so there was um, an agreement with a couple of council members to amend the law. Public hearing was held. And surprisingly, the pushback came from a previous council member and some of the allies from the first bill. So to me, it's significant that 
the new members are, are interested in, in looking at things that work. Um, they were willing to support a bill that was a clarification and I arguably an improvement over work that had been done before. And so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to work constructively with a, a proactive administration, which we certainly didn't have in the last council, and a proactive speaker who will be paying attention to the details of the legislation. Jimmy Answords, one of the other shifts in the council, aside from the newness, is the youngness. Um, a majority of the new council members were in high school uh, on September 11th. Uh, you know, one of the most uh, dramatic effects in the in, uh, incidents in the in the city's history. You yourself are now considered sort of a elder statesman among the millennial political operatives in New York. Do you do you think that they're bringing a fresh perspective or one that perhaps would have benefited from a little bit more seasoning before they took office? Thanks, Ken. And yeah, I was I was in my high school freshman orientation uh, on 9-11. So I'm definitely of the millennial uh, generation. And, you know, I'll say, first of all, it is exciting. It's exciting to have so many young people in office. There are some very, you know, uh, young members of the council, but it's, it's, I think, exciting to have fresh ideas and, and new people. I mean, at the same time, you know, a lot of them are some are experienced, some have, have been in other positions, but some are first-time candidates. And, you know, as we all know, the realities of campaigning are different than the realities of governing, as, as Katie alluded to. And I think, you know, I, I have been pleased to see many of them taking more of a measured approach. I mean, I, I'd say the, the one major tussle has been around bail reform, um, which goes back to, you know, your questions about homelessness and, and safety, where there's this big debate over statistics and whether to fund the police or defund the police. And I think, you know, we, we might see some major, uh, uh, you know, butting of heads between the mayor and some of these new younger progressive members, specifically on police issues. And they haven't really come to a head yet because I think, uh, to Katie's point, the council is still kind of getting their sea legs and no one really wants to kind of get out there and, and go to war with a, a mayor that's still, you know, very popular and then, you know, more or less his honeymoon period. But I expect that as these new council members grow in confidence and, and uh, you know, get their grounding, uh, I think you'll see uh, a, a, a number of them, be it the DSA members or more progressive members, starting to come together to coalesce against uh, a number of the mayor's policies, especially around policing. Yeah, and we're seeing that happen now at the council as they're getting ready to enter into this most intense phase of negotiations over the city's budget, right? They've released their formal response to the mayor's preliminary budget, which was um, somewhat stayed, uh, not unexpectedly. But then there's also been another issuance of the people's budget, which is from some of the more DSA and progressive members of the council, right? And they have taken a much more harsh critique of the mayor's cuts to agency spending, cuts to pet programs and projects, and the increase in funding for things including NYPD technology, right? We saw him out the other day with the robot dogs, which are going to be starting to, you know, patrol parts of the city. And so that's the, that is just setting up this intense dynamic yeah. between the council and the progressive members uh, or the council and the mayor's office, right? And I think it's really going to come to a head in the next month or so as we go into this final phase of budget negotiations. Stuart, uh, you are a member of the board of the uh, Citizens Crime Commission. You spend a lot of time thinking about criminal justice issues across the city. 
given this tension between the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and the more moderate wing that Eric Adams represents, given the concerns that the business community has, um, we've got a new police commissioner. Um, do we think that that she and the deputy mayor for public safety and then the mayor, who some people think is the real police commissioner himself, do we think that we have the right leadership team to, to sort of both push back on the actual rise in crime, but also the perception of crime? Um, well, look, people are in office for 100 days. That's um, uh, not a very long time, especially when you're trying to first form your team and get them in place. And, and, and then events carry you, uh, events that happen uh, on the street that you're not planning for and that you react to. But I think the mayor has staked out a position that's very popular uh, with uh, the people in the city. He's put himself uh, where uh, he wants to see business thrive. Uh, he is not raising taxes. He wants to see people come back to the city and come back to their offices. And he is increasing um, police uh, patrols on the, on the subways. Um, you can't prevent every crime from happening. But on the other hand, it was very good that they identified the person who uh, committed this, uh, this last thing uh, within, within hours of when they did, uh, when, when he did it. So I think that the progressives in the city council are going to find themselves in a somewhat awkward position because I think the mayor's popularity on this will be much greater. And they're going to have to run for office in new lines in uh, two years. The mayor won't have to run for four years. So he'll have a bully pulpit that he could use um, very much to his benefit. Jamie? Yeah. I, you know, and, and just to tie this all together, I feel like the, the mayor's, you know, position on public safety is that perception is reality, which I, I tend to agree with. And there's kind of two different sides of it. One is... There needs to be a perception that you know the city is essentially tough on crime and that there are going to be enough police officers and transit safety out there to ensure that people can ride the subway safely. And that is there's a real kind of regardless of what the numbers do or don't say, you know, I would say there is a crisis in public perception. And I think this you know data does uh, sh shake shake out on that. And so that's what Eric Adams is fighting against. So on one side, you have the perception amongst. Uh, you know, people trying to get them back on the subway, back to restaurants, back to work, but also with the police officers and the transit safety workers themselves. And, you know, we've heard, I think Rose told me a story that, you know, uh, Eric Adams has been going to, you know, events with, with the unions and kind of saying, I have your back. Don't be afraid to do your job. I'm not going to bend to Twitter if they attack you. You have an important job to do to keep the city safe and I will have your back. And the perception with our, our safety, our law enforcement professionals is just as important as the perception with our, uh, our citizens. And I think that's the, the battle that Eric Adams is, is waging. And as Stuart said, it's too early to tell, but I, I'm, I'm hopeful that in the long term, um, you know, it will ensure that we have a safer, uh, more economically vibrant city. Your point about perception is, is well taken. And for, for those outside of New York, wondering whether this is a, a safe place to come. It is still one of the safest cities uh, in, in the country. Uh, and cities around the country have seen 
other upticks as the effects of uh, the economic setback, of, of the isolation of COVID, uh, the warm weather bringing more people out uh, the street. This is not isolated to New York. But interestingly enough, in the early uh, months of the Adams administration, there were a number of uh, shooting incidents that, that, that were murders. And that's what the tabloids were focused on. The most recent statistics show that the murders have actually gone down uh, about 20% compared to the same period last year. On the other hand, other kinds of major crimes, including uh, theft and assaults and so forth, were up about 30% compared to uh, uh, a year ago. But that was also a period where there were far fewer people on the street because of, of the intense wave of COVID at, at that time. But that's what you're reading about in the newspapers, not the drop in the, in the murder rate. So I think people can be confident that they can come to New York and have a safe experience. But here's the thing. All you need is one person assaulted on a subway platform, one tourist that gets um, uh, shot, as we've seen some horrific things. And because New York is the media capital of the country, um, it gets amplified in a way um, and particularly because we have a former police officer as the mayor who has staked this out as his as his signature uh, issue. But I want to ask Katie, Jamie, you know, on the ground at the at the street level, um, you do a lot of work with the small business community and, you know, restaurants are still suffering. There's a lot of uh, vacant retail stores. Some of that a function of the drop in population. Some of it is a function of the competition with with online delivery services is the is the small business community feeling besieged and do they do they see an ally in in Eric Adams I think uh, that you know they do still feel besieged in terms of you know agency enforcement and fines but they do feel like they may have an, an ally in the mayor who certainly uh, indicated a desire to help relieve regulatory and other burdens on our small businesses evidenced by his second executive order that he signed, I think within maybe 48 hours of taking office was the business forward executive order directing several major agencies uh, to, to find and present the 25 most common uh, fines on small businesses for potential revision or, or change. And, you know, I, I, we, we can certainly say, you know, through our, our work on the ground that, that businesses are hopeful that this mayor both will talk the talk in terms of being pro-business and pro-public-private partnerships, but also walk the walk in terms of, uh, you know, stimulating our economic recovery and removing unnecessary regulatory burdens on our small business. So it's still too early and, you know, we've got open streets to figure out and, you know, the proof is going to be in the budget and, and in the legislation on a lot of these things. But I think uh, a, a number of small businesses and small business leaders are, are cautiously optimistic that they have a partner in this new mayor. Right. And I think this, again, goes to the issue of, you know, campaigning rather and, and governing. Right. Because the, the language is there. The cheerleading is there. There's reason for optimism. There's a, definitely a sensation that the police have been unleashed in a way to to address street crime and shoplifting and issues like that are really related to business, small business in particular, their ability to thrive. At the same time, we know that the agencies are woefully understaffed and the administrative you know, rigmarole has not been sorted out yet. 100 days is a very short period of time, certainly not enough time to undo decades of bureaucracy, but it's a big, it's a big challenge. And so it, 
remains to be seen whether this administration will really step up and do that difficult work um, to, to get make sure that the talk is, is more than just talk. One other change in uh, government, both at the city and state level, that I think is quite remarkable. A majority of the New York City Council, for the first time, women. Uh, we've had previous city council speakers who are women. We have one now. Uh, the mayor appointed four deputy mayors, all women, unprecedented, as well as major positions, police commissioner, the corporation council for the, for the city of New York. Um, and we're also seeing the same thing at the state level. We've got the Senate majority leader um, for the Democrats, a woman. And perhaps the most um, uh, significant development, although she wasn't initially elected to office, New York has its first woman governor in Kathy Hochul. So I want to ask, have we seen have we seen that gender shift um, manifest itself in any kind of change in priorities and in, in the budget um, or in other approaches to government? I think the um, I think there's been certainly a shift in style and a shift in uh, wanting to find ways to work together. And I think there's no more evident example of that than the uh, relationship of Governor Hochul and Mayor Adams, uh, who are working collaboratively and supportively of one another instead of the very frosty uh, relationship that existed between Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio. Uh, they couldn't even be on the same stage together. And uh, this bodes very, very well for the city. I think that the governor has um, uh, unleashed a budget that will provide a lot of uh, opportunities and aid to the city and is fighting for other issues uh, that are uh, critical to the city and to the mayor, such as uh, mayoral control and- and, uh, and um, Control of the schools, right? Right, mayoral control of the schools and, and affordable housing incentives. So, so th those are very major issues that were not done finished in the budget, but which uh, will be addressed over the next uh, uh, month and a half in the remainder of the, uh, of the session legislative session up in New York. I'll also point out that the leadership team for the governor, the director of state operations, Catherine Garcia, the uh, uh, secretary to the governor, which is the most powerful person outside the governor in, in New York, is uh, Karen Keogh. Uh, the counsel to the governor is Liz Fine. So it's a very different um, uh, look uh, in terms of um, the senior leadership team. Rose, are you seeing that playing out in actual uh, budget priorities or changes in policy? You know, I always think it's interesting when this question comes up, right? Because I do think it has so much to do with an individual's personality and style when it comes to negotiations and governing. And that can be attributed to a man or a woman or someone who's non-binary, right? It's all just about the individual. I think Stuart's exactly right that Kathy, the governor, has taken a different approach, certainly, than, than former Governor Cuomo. Um, and I think I talked about it as much up to her personality as her gender. Um, but in terms of actual 
uh, substantive proposals. What I found fascinating is watching the male politicians and elected officials bend over backwards to find priorities that will appeal to women voters and to their their counterparts in government. For example, we saw we've seen both. Borough President Antonio Reynoso and Mayor Adams both pick up the issue of maternal mortality as key issues for them and things that they want to accomplish within their first year, reducing the instances of maternal mortality, particularly for Black women giving birth in New York City. Brooklyn is the most dangerous place in the state for a Black woman to give birth. And uh, Borough President Reynoso and the mayor have teamed up to make that uh, to make it substantial investments in public health and hospital systems in order to reduce the rates of mortality. And so there are things like that that we're seeing and childcare, you know, access to childcare, paid childcare, family leave. These are all things that are traditionally um, issues that cater towards women. But um, I'm seeing more and more men in elected office pick these up as issues they want to champion rather than leaving it to the women um, to do it, which I, I love, right? I, I Kudos to, to them. All those issues are incredibly important. So policy and politics come together in any number of ways and building constituency coalitions is critical to any politician's ability to get elected or reelected. In the case of Kathy Hochul, upstate, lieutenant governor, uh, under Andrew Cuomo, somewhat distanced from him, he resigns in a uh, in a in a scandal that, uh, in some ways, is still playing out politically. But she's up for election this year. She is um, in a primary in June uh, with all of the advantages that an incumbent has. She has the ability to command the media. She has the ability to wield the power of government. She has an incredible fundraising base, support of most of the Democratic establishment. When it comes to actual voters, one of the key constituents for any Democrat in a primary and even and especially in a general election is the ability to get turnout from the African-American and, 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 and to some extent Latino uh, communities, constituencies core to the Democratic Party. Now, in Kathy Hochul's case, she's in an interesting dynamic. Eric Adams, the leading African-American political figure in the city, um, she needs his support. At the same time, her support is critical for his ability to function as mayor. We saw what happened, as you mentioned before, when, when Andrew Cuomo stomped all over Bill de Blasio. So now we've got this, this uh, dynamic between the two of them. Katie, is that playing out for New Yorkers' benefit? No, I think it's playing out, perhaps not in the most robust way that we had all hoped for earlier in the year. Um, I think the governor has been certainly weakened by the lieutenant governor's uh, downfall in the last week. And I think what we saw over the course of the budget session was that she is a smart and savvy politician, but that New York politics is a really a rough and tumble game. And that those who have been perhaps the most aggressive in the past have really been the ones who have reaped the most victory. So Kathy, I think, did pretty well in the budget. She certainly accomplished what she set out to do. Um, and now her job will be, I think, to convince voters that that's what she did, right? She's She doesn't have the sort of chest-thumping personality. She's not someone to put down the people she disagrees with. Um, she's She has really a collaborative, strong style, but definitely a collaborative style. And I think that's different from what we've seen for so many years. And I think that whether that translates to voters as someone that they think is strong and effective 
that's really going to be the dilemma for her. Well, one of the uh, strong statements she made to the African-American community was by selecting Brian Benjamin to be her lieutenant governor, um, her appointment, and her running mate in the Democratic primary, even though they um, run on separate ballot lines. Now, we've had another startling development in, uh, in New York, which is uh, the recent arrest of Brian Benjamin uh, on federal uh, bribery and corruption charges, his resignation as lieutenant governor, curiously timed by the federal government uh, just at the point where he was no longer uh, easily available to get off uh, the ballot line. So, Jamie, is this is this um, uh, effort that Hochul made, the message that she sent to the black community uh, by picking uh, uh, Brian Benjamin as her running mate, is this now going to backfire on her? Does this make her vulnerable in a Democratic primary? Well, Ken, I mean, it's it's important for a governor to have, uh, you know, a number two, you know, the same way the, the vice president is the biggest booster of the president, you know, generally the lieutenant governor is the biggest booster of the governor. Um, you know, to what extent that pays dividends, I think, is is uh, debatable. Uh, but I think the number one challenge here for the governor and, and what is really a unique and complex legal and political tangle, uh, given the situation where Brian Benjamin, it's very difficult to get him off the ballot and then even more difficult to get anyone else on the ballot at this point. Um, but I think the real challenge is going to be having just gotten through this budget with a number of victories, changing the conversation from being all about uh, you know, uh, Lieutenant Governor Benjamin's unfortunate downfall to what she has accomplished for New Yorkers. I think it's a it's a real shame that uh, you know the public trust has again been been breached. As good of a guy as Brian Benjamin is, and he's a you know been a friend over the years. And I feel you know terrible for New York State, for voters, for the governor, for him and his family. You know, we'll see how it shakes out. But uh, Governor Hochul has a real challenge on her hands to navigate. Uh, who she, who if anyone, she's going to adopt as a running mate. Uh, how, if if they're able, they're going to make adjustments to the ballot. And then to your point, you know, she has a big war chest, but she hasn't really started spending it. So getting on TV, starting to sell her vision, sell her stewardship through COVID and the budget, because she has a lot to run on. And it's very unfortunate that now voters and the media are going to be so focused on this, uh, you know, this this additional scandal over the next few weeks. So that okay. I think will be her big challenge. Yeah, her victory lap lasted not even 24 hours before this uh, uh, scandal hit. Uh, however, um, a lot of people are are focused on the scandal. I don't know that they'll be focused on it uh, when there's an election. Uh, she's going to pick another uh, lieutenant governor. Uh, there'll be a lot of other issues um, uh, to look at. But if you ask me, uh, Lieutenant Governor is very good. I don't know how many votes Kathy Hochul brought to Andrew Cuomo, even though she was upstate and a woman and therefore designed to balance the ticket. And I don't know, it, it would seem that, that a lot more votes would come Kathy Hochul's way if she got the support of the mayor. And the mayor is very interestingly not wanting to be taken for granted. So interspersed with um, a lot of appearances with the governor and being on the same page and, and um, working collaboratively, 
uh, interspersed with that are his dinners with Andrew Cuomo. So she keeps everyone on, he, he keeps everyone on their toes. And, but come, come November, uh, I'm not sure people are going to be focused on lieutenant governor as much. It's an interesting story. And the, they're trying to figure out a statutory uh, remedy in the next, when the legislature returns, that would allow Brian Benjamin to get off the ticket. Uh, and, and then uh, we'll see how that plays out. But the story isn't over. It will dominate for another few weeks. And then I don't think it's the main story. Mayoral control will be bigger. Um, housing, affordable housing will be bigger. And, and crime will continue to dominate. So while the mayor, the governor, their teams, the legislatures are dealing with those big picture issues of, of, of crime and homelessness, COVID education, um, there are also some things percolating that can help put the, the fun back in Fun City. And those are the, the three C's. It's casinos, cannabis, and crypto. So uh, as, as both economic development um, uh, engines and also uh, as things that attract uh, people to come in and to New York and spend their money, um, these are different from our traditional entertainment venues, culture, Broadway, and the like. Stuart, are we going to have a casino in New York City anytime soon? Yeah, I mean, I think we may change the name of lieutenant governor to vice governor uh, because we have so many uh, different things going on. But uh, it's um, uh, casinos... Uh, there were four upstate casinos authorized back in 2013 and three downstate casinos that weren't to be authorized until 2023. Uh, the legislation in the budget that just passed uh, accelerated uh, the, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the date by which uh, casino applications can be accepted and granted by a year. Uh, these are downstate casinos. Uh, the largest grossing uh, racino is Gentings at Aqueduct. MGM has an enormous um, position in, um, at, at Yonkers. And Mayor Adams has come out fully in support of two casinos in New York City. That would mean a second one in New York City if uh, Genting and Yonkers receive uh, the nods because they can probably bid more than most others. This is a bidding war of at least a half a billion dollars for a license. Think people thinking a billion dollars for a license, and um, it's a big a business construction project and and jobs and everything else. So this is something that is uh, very exciting for New York. Uh, New York will be the gambling mecca, and there will be a frenzy for these applications. And Jamie, when those casinos open, will people be able to stop by a, a weed store, uh, pay for it with uh, with crypto and go have some fun? But I should hope so, Ken. You know, New York has been unfortunately behind the curve on the legalization of cannabis, but we are getting there as final regulations should be released over the next month. And hopefully license applications will open up at the end of this year with dispensaries open early next year. And it's a huge opportunity for the state, for communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. Uh, cannabis alone, I think, could be a $6 billion industry here in New York. And same with crypto. I mean, uh, talk about being a cheerleader. Eric Adams has very much 
uh, tried to make New York uh, a crypto capital. He's kind of in a, a battle with the mayor of Miami over that. Um, but it showed, and 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 Adams has been very supportive of the cannabis uh, legalization efforts as well. I think it goes again to his economic strategies: pro casino, pro cannabis, pro crypto. He wants to bring as many opportunities and jobs to New York City as possible, and I think he's being quite effective. So I think if we were going to give a letter grade to Eric Adams only three months into his administration, it would probably be an incomplete. But if you were doing an evaluation for him, um, has his has his performance to this point exceeded expectations, been about what you expected, or slightly disappointing? Katie, one word. As expected. Stuart? Exceeded. Rose? As expected, generally speaking. <laughs> Jamie? Encouraging. I'm encouraged by his results to date. So that's it for this episode of Beltway uh, Briefing. Uh, I'm Ken Fisher. My thanks to Rose Chris, Katie Schwab, Jamie Ansorge, Stuart Shorenstein. Uh, we'll be back later in the year to give an update on the New York political scene with our statewide elections and how the city is faring in these complicated and challenging times. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.